I'd like to look at two chapters this morning, Psalms 120 and then 121. We're going to look at both of those this morning. Psalm 121 was uh, particularly on my mind and my heart in the last few days. And as with many things, the more you study, the more you realize how connected the scriptures are. Many of you are taking a nice uh, journey, if you will, with me, maybe yet again through the scriptures this year by listening to the Daily Audio Bible. And one of the things that I had noticed for years while doing so is he will call this a song of ascent or a song of degrees. And I guess I'd always kind of like wondered what, what that meant. And so I looked into it and here we go. <laughs> You'll see a grouping of about, or actually 15 psalms all together, 120 through 134. And they're each titled A Song of Ascent, or depending on your translation, it may say A Song of Degrees. Degrees being the Hebrew word that is used here. There are four of them that are attributed to David, one of them to Solomon, and the ten others are anonymous. So it begs the question, What are we talking about? An ascent, degrees, what's going on here? There's several uh, theories for what this means, as with many things in the scripture. Because we have different authors, it's not as though this was a a planned thing. It wasn't as though someone sat down and said, I'm going to do these uh, 15 short psalms in an order. Some people have theorized that they build on each other in an ascending way, whether by rhythm or um, the way that they are composed or by volume. But the more prominent explanation is that this is a series of psalms that was sung as people went to Jerusalem, and they ascended the mountain or hill, I guess depending on your context, that the city of Jerusalem sits upon. It's around 3,500 feet elevation from the floor around it all the way to the top, so it's a good ways up. You have to ascend to get into The city. Now, this word of ascent, or as I said, degrees, is used in several places throughout the scripture, and it's commonly talked about ascending to um, the temple. One in particular, let me read for you real quick. Uh, 1 Chronicles 15, 14 through 16. I'm just going to read these very briefly. 1 Chronicles 15, 14 through 16 says So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark on their shoulders with the poles as Moses commanded them according to the word of the Lord. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers who should play loudly on musical instruments on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. And that phrase, to bring up, is the same one Hebrew word that we see here. This idea that we're going to bring something or raise it up. So again, I said that Jerusalem is situated on a hill. So if you're going to go into Jerusalem from outside, you're going to be going up. And it's likely that this was a series of psalms that was sung as people were taking their pilgrimage into the city of Jerusalem, primarily for some of the festivals that they have. It was a common practice for many of the festivals to go into Jerusalem to worship. 
And so what I'd like to do for the next few weeks is kind of look at some of these psalms. So if you want to study ahead, you can read 120 through 134 in the psalms. And I want you at the same time to consider that Jesus Christ is about to make the same ascent for the very last time. Let me read that for you. Luke 19, if you'd like to turn there just for a minute. Luke 19, verse 37 says, And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowds answered him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, What that you, even you, had on this day, the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you, hem you in on every side and tear down and tear you down to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And then the next verse says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. The point I want you to picture in your mind now and for the next few weeks as we come closer and closer to Easter is that Christ was doing his ministry work outside of Jerusalem and he turns to go back to the city. And if you look at pictures today of Jerusalem, many times what you see is pictures from the mountain across the valley from the city and you see um, the skyline there. And this is exactly what is being described here. Before Christ entered into go down into the valley and up into Jerusalem. He looks over the city and begins to weep over it, saying, if you had only listened, if you only knew that I was the Messiah, that I am coming to save you, as he begins to enter into the valley, and as he begins to come up, we see the crowd around him singing Hosanna in the highest, and laying their jackets before him, and their palm trees only for a short few hours or days before very likely some of the same crowd turns on him and crucifies him. And so as we think about these um, hymns that were likely sung by the pilgrims going into Jerusalem, let us also keep in mind that our Lord and Savior made the exact same journey for us, knowing full well as he left that mountaintop after weeping over the city that he would be raised to almost celebrity status for a few short hours, and then betrayed, lied about, and crucified for you and for me. So let's go back to Psalms 120, if you will. Now, if this interpretation is correct, if this is a, a series of psalms that are sung as people journeyed into Jerusalem then this one we might position maybe also at the top of the hill 
as we start down into the valley just before we come up. And we see in Scripture and also in our own language that uh, the valley is a hard place, isn't it? How many of you have been in a valley? How many of you are in a valley? Hmm. Let's read Psalm 120 in its entirety. It says, A song of ascents. In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from, my, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrow with glowing coals from the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Mesic, and I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The title of this, Deliver Me, O God, is what appears in my scripture before these verses begin. I very intently meant what I said last Sunday. I'm concerned about our future. I'm concerned that people are saying false things about us that are lying about us. And if they're not paying attention to us now, it's one of two reasons. Either they will in the future, or it's because we don't matter right now. Does that make sense? No reason to attack somebody if they don't matter. So if they're not attacking us for our religious beliefs, either get ready, or it's because we don't matter at the moment. Each should be concerning. But here we see this psalm of someone who was in distress. It says, In my distress... I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Now, this distress is probably not talking about a physical distress, but more of a mental anguish, if you will. Someone who is being greatly affected. And I think we see from verse 2 being harassed, making someone's life miserable. You ever had somebody else make your life miserable with their mouth? for what they say about you? I sure have. Slander, or speaking falsely against somebody, is perhaps one of the most annoying troubles that we deal with. How do you prove yourself right or innocent? <laughs> I think there's two general responses we have when someone lies about us. We return it. Ouch. Or we try to defend ourselves. You ever had a single person or maybe a couple of people who have thought or said something about you that's untrue and you try to convince them the opposite? That's really hard. Okay, more than one person, shake your head, right? This is really hard. I'm not alone in this, right? And everything in me wants to cry out and either say false things about them to accuse them or to come to my own defense and say, no, 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 you don't understand, Usually I don't have great success in that. And I'm sure you don't either. Often when we are in distress, we call to somebody else. I'll call a friend to speak kindly of me. Or I'll talk to so-and-so and say, go, go talk to this. Or if it's not when someone is harassing me by saying false things about me, and I am just in distress for any reason, I will go to anyone other than who? The Lord. 
How many times have we been in distress and we have gone to a parent or a friend or a substance or a thing to find relief other than who we should, which is to the Lord? Now, I've said this repeatedly. You're probably tired of me hearing it, but let me just once again remind you of my repeated stories and my experience with Brother Josh. I'll be in distress over something, and trust me, it happens a lot. And I'll pick up the phone to call him to go for advice or just let him listen to me vent. And on those days and those times, he never, ever answers. (laughs) Ever. Like, it never, ever fails. I've never once been all in a tizzy, all upset, all distressed, and called him, and he's picked up the phone and said, Hey, what's up, buddy? Every single time, he doesn't answer. And what am I forced to do and reminded of every time I try to call him? There's nothing wrong with calling a brother or a sister or a friend or a parent. But I should go who? The Lord first. Not my friend. And that's a great reminder. That in my distress, I should call to the Lord. Because why? Because he will answer me. That's what the verse says. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. If I ever call to the Lord and he doesn't answer, whose fault is that? That's mine, (laughs) right? It's not because he's busy. Not because he's sleeping. We'll talk about that in a minute. Not because he doesn't hear me but only because my heart is not in a place to receive the word that he is trying to tell me because he knew before I called out that I was in distress. In fact, he knew yesterday that I would be in distress today. So it's not like he's not there when I need him. I am always the one who does the leaving in the relationship. It's never his fault that he may seem distant. It's always mine. Now remember, those of us who are saved, who are Christians, we know that we should not be in distress. 2 Corinthians 4 and 8 tells us we are troubled in every side, yet not distressed. It doesn't say your life will be stress-free. It doesn't say your life will be without trouble. It says that we will not be distressed. We will not be in anguish of mind. We will not be greatly impacted. We will not be miserable if we call to the Lord. Recall what Jesus Christ told us. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice whose account it is. It's his. If you mess up, it's on you. If you violate a clear law and someone gives you a hard time for it, own it, ask for forgiveness and change. But if you are standing on a principle that God clearly has given unto us and people make fun of you, they revile you, they harass you, they lie about you, they try to get you, then understand what this verse is saying are. Saying is, we are blessed when the world persecutes us. Well, as I said, get ready. Because it's going to happen. If we're living the way we should. So in my distress, I called upon the Lord. He delivered me. 
Deliver me, O Lord, from the lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Let's look at verse 3 and 4. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. This one takes just a few minutes to explain. What can be done to a deceitful tongue? What can be done, I'm sorry, with a deceitful tongue? Not much. You can always lie. You can get caught and still keep lying. The broom tree, or sometimes translated a juniper tree, I had to look this up because I was curious what we're talking about here. The wood has one of the highest heat outputs of any wood and burns longer than almost any other wood. So if you're building a fire, you want some juniper wood. It's dry, easy to start, really hot, and burns a really long time. So what are we talking about? The sharp arrows with glowing coals of a broom or a juniper tree. I think this is a warning that we are not to join with our own lying lips. Because I think that those who lie, the scripture tells us, will receive their punishment in a very hot, long-burning place. We must make sure that we are above this, not because we don't want to go to hell, but because we are different and peculiar people. It is not our place to join the mockers and mock back. It is not our place to stand and make things up and lie about other people or other situations. Why? Because we are different. And it is the home of those where it burns hot and long who do those things. And we must not engage with them under any circumstance because we call to the Lord. Look at verse 5 through 7. Woe to me that I sojourn in Mesek, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now again, let me unpack this for just a minute. A sojourn is someone who's just passing through. We're just passing through. I I feel like I should put this on a mirror if it wouldn't just become commonplace and I get used to seeing it. This world is not my home. And many of you finish the line of the song. I'm just a passing through. I'm only here temporarily. All my friends is temporary. The family that God has given me is temporary. The wealth that he may have given me is temporary. Everything here on this earth is just temporary. I don't really own any of it. None of it really belongs to me, and I have very little control over any of it. And the sooner that we would fully realize this, the differently we would live our lives. But we have become so uh, consumed with things and power and positions and money in this world that somehow we think that we're like going through it and going to be able to take it with us. Even though we know that's not true, we act differently, don't we? We are simply sojourners. Now, he mentions these two things. Mesic, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly is in the scripture referred to as a, um, a barbarous kind of region where those who hate peace live. Part of the world where those who hate peace 
live. And then Kedar is one of the sons of Ishmael, who was a nomad who lived in tents and who became known as the Arabs. And Genesis 25 and 18 says, they lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. They didn't even get along with their family. And so we have here two examples for us to understand. We are temporarily living in a land of people who don't even get along with their relatives, right? And a barbarous region where people don't like peace. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? I read this and I'm like, yep, I'm right here. 2021, how about that? In a land where people don't like peace. Whew. Not been a lot of peace this last year, has there? Not on almost any account. Do we live in a land of people who hate each other? Yes. The reality is this. We are exiles, foreigners, sojourners, refugees. We are temporarily dwelling with hostile Barbarous, lying people. Now, before you are quick to say amen, ask yourself how much you look like the people you live with. How comfortable are we living in a wicked, lying, barbarous world? Can anyone tell the difference between you and a lying barbarian who hates peace? It's a real question we should ask ourselves. It's something that this psalm invites for us to consider as we look down into the valley and up to Jerusalem, up to the high place, up to the Lord. Are you comfortable living with the wicked? We saw what happened when the Hebrews did that. It didn't work out very well. The verse that says, I am for peace, may be better translated, I am peace. We spend a lot of time talking about salvation because it's one of the most important things there is for us to talk about. And I have told you that it is sometimes difficult to describe exactly how that happens. But one phrase that seems to come to mind over and over again when someone is truly saved is that there is a peace that comes upon you. Somehow when you realize that you have put your faith in the Lord and your sins have been forgiven and you have that calm inner peace, you just know deep down inside that something's different. And that peace that comes only from the Lord then dwells in you and you become peace in a generation and in a world that says there is no peace. If the Lord is in you, then you can say, I am peace. So the verse continues, I am peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Basically, no matter what we do, no matter how kind we are, no matter how helpful we are, no matter how considerate we are to other people, if they are dead set against war, it doesn't matter how peaceful our language is. The world's not going to love you. And they're not going to be your friends if they're dead set on violence and war. And all too often, we get tricked into thinking somehow the world is our friend. We get comfortable thinking, no, no, it's okay. I'm their friend. They like me. And the next thing we know, something is said against us. 
whether it be a lie or be it true, and we realize that we are being betrayed, and we are reminded once again that we are only supposed to be passing through, not building our life based on things of this world. I was told early on when I began my first career, I guess, that the agency or organization I was about to work for or currently working for could not love me the way I loved it. It can't love me back. It's not possible. What they were saying inside of that phrase is that I can put forth my uh, effort, my sweat, literally on occasion, my blood in that case, my tears on actual occasion as well, everything I have into this profession but it cannot do the same to me because it is an inanimate object. Your work will betray you. It doesn't care about you. How many of you have experienced something like that? Your boss will betray you. It cannot, he or she cannot care for you like you care about your position. The people you work with will let you down. Now, move beyond a job. Everything in life is like this. No matter how much we pour ourselves into it, it will let us down because it cannot and will not love us back because it does not know the Lord, either because it is a functioning thing that cannot, like an organization, like a job, or even a church, and not an individual, or because the individual doesn't know the Lord, and no matter how much you think you might be friends with them, if they do not know the Lord, if they do not have the peace in them, at some point, it will not go well between you. So you can speak for peace, and be for peace, and actually be peace, and they will and always will be for war. It doesn't matter what you say to them. And here again, this is where I'm at in our society today. It doesn't matter what we try and say. The answer is not good enough. They want you to repeat this phrase, and so you say it, but it's still not good enough. They want you to join this group, and so you do, but it's still not good enough. They want you to do this and give money to that cause, but it still won't be good enough. It never, ever will be enough because you are peace and they are war. And the two do not go together. So let us rest knowing that the Lord knows, that he hears our distress. Let us not become too comfortable in this world because we're just passing through and it's not our home. So let me move on to Psalms 121. As I mentioned, perhaps 120 was sung in the valley before we begin the ascent in the difficult times that we have in life. And maybe Psalms 121 is as we look up the hill into Jerusalem because it has some imagery that would make us think as much. Psalms 121 reads this way, a song of ascents. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. 
The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil, and he will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And so as we begin this song of ascent, as we continue... We look up into the city of Jerusalem and we ask the question, having just talked about the distress that we might experience in life, where does our hope come from? Now, I don't think the psalmist is saying this because they don't know. They know. But this question is one that we should ask. Where does our hope come from? As we lift our eyes up to the hills, does it come from the city of Jerusalem? No, it doesn't now, and it didn't then. Does it come from the temple that was sitting on the hill in Jerusalem? No, it didn't then, because it's not there, as we already read about. It certainly doesn't now. Our hope comes from nothing that is man-made. We can look up. We can look to nature itself, but our hope comes from something beyond that. Our help in a very present time of need doesn't come from my brother or my sister. It doesn't come from your pastor. It doesn't come from your church. It doesn't come from your family or your job or anything else. My hope comes from the Lord. The one who made the heavens and the earth. There is nowhere else to look in our times of trouble, when we're in the valley looking out, we cannot and should not look to another person, another thing. We should look to the Lord who made all these things. My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Verse 3 and 4 give us some insightful things. It says, He will not let your foot be moved. And other translations will say, slip or stumble. As we stare up from the valley, looking for the Lord, He will not allow our foot to slip, to stumble, or be moved. And if our feet don't move, nothing else does either. If God will not allow us to stumble or fall as we look to Him, then nothing else is going to move. Also, I want you to look at this. This is very personal. Verse 3, we see the word your and you in here twice. Let me reread this for you. He will not let Vivian's foot be moved. He will not let Josh's foot be moved. He will not let Cody's foot be moved. Your foot. He's not talking about all of us, some organization. He is talking about you. In your present need, when you need help, he will not let your foot be moved. He keeps your foot and he will not slumber. 
I don't think I'm misinterpreting Scripture at all when I say this. Go ahead and pencil in your name if you want to, because He is talking about you, because He is a God that is personal to us individually. Yes, we come together and we gather together to worship Him, but we know Him individually and He knows us. Think about the sermon where we talked about collaborating with Him. I or He will not let Ben's foot be moved. And He who keeps Ben will not slumber. Do we really think that's true? I hope so. Now he talks about sleeping and slumbering. Those are two different things. Sleeping kind of refers to more of the sound sleeping like you do at night. Slumbering is what most of us do on a Sunday afternoon. Where we're kind of awake, but kind of not. Neither of those are attributes of the Lord. When we sleep or slumber... We are unaware of what's going on around us, and we are defenseless. Think about how terrifying this was, especially going back a few years, when you didn't live inside of a house that animals couldn't get inside of. Or you didn't have to worry about an unexpected snowstorm coming. To go to sleep, put tremendous amount of trust in someone to watch over you, or it opened yourself up to a tremendous amount of risk. It's not like it is today. So if we think about what sleep used to be, and we think about what God does not do, He's not sleeping while He's watching over you. He never sleeps while He watches over you. He doesn't even slumber. That's that kind of like halfway asleep. That's why I mentioned maybe the nap. You kind of hear what's going on, and maybe it kind of takes part of your dream, and you wake up, and you kind of knew that someone was there and a little bit of what they were talking about, but you weren't really sure. That's not God. He's not fully asleep. He's not partially asleep. He is awake. He is watching. He is waiting. He is keeping our feet sure. He is looking over us, and he is not sleeping, not slumbering, keeping a watch over us. The Lord does not sleep and he does not slumber. The Lord, it says in verse 5, is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. So let me ask this. If the Lord is our keeper, what are we afraid of? What someone else will say about us? What the world might do to us? Are we afraid of slipping and falling? If he's our keeper, if he never slumbers, and if he will keep our feet planted firmly? Yea, though I walk through the valley, there it is, of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. We can walk through this valley And we can be on the road to ascent looking unto him because we can be sure that our feet are planted firmly, that he is not sleeping, and that any shadow that comes over us is not the shadow of death that we have to be afraid of, but the shadow of care and love. The one that keeps the sun from burning us or blinding us and instead encourages us. The shadow is mentioned here is meant to help us to fight the enemy. 
Psalms 110.5 says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Psalms 91 says this, No terror of night or destruction at the noonday. Consider this. He is keeping us. He's given us shelter when we need it and light when we need it. His keeping. He is able to keep us. He has engaged to keep us. He's providing for us. He has kept us. And he will keep us. He'll keep us as the apple of his eye. Do you know that's in there? Four times. Scripture talks about this. Sometimes we're the apple of his eyes. Sometimes it's the other way around. This idea of a personal, close relationship that he will keep us. Let me finish with verse 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Again, this is personal. We can put our name in here, your. He will keep us from all evil. Which evil? All of them. All of them. Not just some, but all of them. This includes everything and excludes nothing. He will keep your life. Now, this is not your physical life. I believe this is your spiritual life. Your soul. No matter what kind of valley you are in, if you have given yourself unto him and you have experienced the peace that I described a moment ago, if you are truly his, then nothing and no one can take you out of his care. The Lord will keep you. And it's a good thing. Because if I had to keep myself, (laughs) I'd be lost. If I had to rely on someone else to keep me, I'd be lost. The beauty behind the relationship is that once I'm saved, God keeps me. I don't have to continually earn it. I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to worry about him leaving. Again, it's always me who does the leaving. The Lord will keep us. I wrote down here, no matter what valley you were in or trouble that's around you, Your soul is not yours to keep. He is the Lord, and he will keep you. In fact, in these two verses, he says it three times. And he concludes with this. You're going out, and you're coming in. When you go out to work or to somewhere, and when you come in, because it's on my mind with recent births and maybe one impending. When you come out, and we'll just say when you go down. The Lord will keep you. In everything that you do, he will keep you. When others mock and make fun of you, when others lie about you, when you are in the valley, no matter what the circumstances are, it tells us three times, the Lord is our keeper. The Lord will keep us. In everything that we do, 
We must have confidence in this and be about our Father's business. I must be less concerned about the things of this world and more focused on Him. I must be less fearful of losing my footing and more trusting in Him and do the things He wants me to do. Because I will confess to you, the times I'm most concerned about losing my footing, if you will, about slipping and falling, is when I'm most concerned about the things the world has to offer. Or I'm concerned about someone's opinion of me. Or I'm concerned about whether someone loves me back the way I want them to. And when I focus on Him, my feet are firm. So as we consider the wicked land that we live in. As we remember, there were only sojourners here for a brief time. As we grow more discontent with the people who want war and speak against us. And as we remember that the Lord is our hope, that he never slumbers, and that he keeps us on a sure footing, And as we start to ascend from the valley floor looking up, ask yourself, is the Lord your keeper? Now, as with almost every close of a sermon, there's three possible answers to this. Is the Lord your keeper? One is, the answer is no. And if you've never been saved then the Lord is not only not your keeper, he's your enemy. Or I guess you should say rather, you're his enemy. So ask yourself, is the Lord your keeper? Now, if you know that you've been saved, you know that you've had that peace that I've talked about, then the other possible answer out of the three is that you know up here in your head that the Lord is your keeper, but you are so focused on things of the world, you are not allowing him to keep you spiritually. And you're trying to climb the mountain on your own. You're trying to argue back with those who have things to say against you out of your own will. You're trying to carve your niche out in this world where you really don't belong. The answer to that is to go back to the Lord, to look unto him only and him alone and say, Lord, help me and keep me, keep my feet firmly planted, point me in the direction and send me onwards and come with me. The third option, maybe you're doing all those things. And I say more power to you. Continue on. And be encouraged. So whether you have no idea what we're talking about. You know because you've been there before. But currently aren't. And need some help getting back on the path. And the assurance to know that God is with you. And will guide you and will lead you. Or you know all this for a fact today. Are confident in it. And are headed in the right direction. Maybe it's time you pray for some others who need a little encouragement. I'm not saying that negatively. I'm being very sincere in that. We have opportunities to help others. Now, mind you, it's God who does this, not you. All you can do is point. All you can do is look to your brothers and sisters and say, does your hope come from there? No. Our hope, my hope and your hope, it comes from the Lord.
And so I pray that we would consider where we're at in this journey. As we start our ascent, as we travel with Jesus Christ, as you think about his entry, his climb up the mountain, he knew for a fact where he was going and he did it anyway. He knew that thousands of people would fall down before him crying Hosanna and then just a few short hours later, thousands of people would yell crucify him. But he did it anyway. And God was with him. Is the same God that's with you. I think we forget this sometimes. I don't think we fully understand that when Christ became man, that he set aside part of his glory to live like us. Which meant he had to do what? To trust his father. And we see that after he marches up the hill into Jerusalem and then goes partway down to the Garden of Gethsemane and says, if you will take this away from me, do it. But nevertheless, not my, but your will be done. See, he had a choice like we do. Let us consider that as we think about what he did for us, as we think about the faith and love that he had in his father, as we know for a fact, his feet never slipped and his father never slept. It's the same God who loves us.